This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time at Core Brain Journal, and we have a very interesting guest. You know, here at Core Brain Journal, we're so interested in the evolution of humankind, how we think about the mind, how we grow our lives, how we grow our society and the people who are dear to us and the patients that we treat. So, and today, Dr. Danny Brussell is going to join us. Thanks a lot, Danny, for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chuck. So he has an ebook that he's going to actually give away to listeners called Read, Lead, and Succeed. And this guy has been around the world, numerous presentations. I'm going to give you a formal introduction in just a moment. Before that, we're just going to talk about our supportive people out there. Core Brain Journal is supported by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved targeted mind science details. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond guesswork. And they also provide multiple training webinars. I think this is really a cool part of what they do for both the public and medical providers on how to use that informed data more effectively. Check out their website for references and testing details. And they have been really supportive of us. They are going to give some tests away. And the way you do that is you go over and you can register for a complimentary test drawing. And they have numerous tests that they're going through and rotating through on a weekly basis. So you can go run over to this URL and see if it's a test you want. And these tests are all valuable. I mean, they range from, you know, whatever, two, $300 to 600 bucks. So, you know, it's, they're really supporting, they're supporting you and they're supporting what we do here. So run over and take a look at great Plains Laboratory, all one word, dot com forward slash CBJ for core brain journal. It's easy enough to remember. Great Plains Laboratory dot com forward slash CBJ. So let me tell you about Danny here. So he is affectionately known, get this, as the Jim Carrey with a PhD. So Dr. Danny Brussell has held numerous titles and worked with leaders from a variety of fields and disciplines, but he has always considered himself first and foremost a teacher. He's a best-selling author, we get this, 15 books, including The Reading Makeover, based on his popular TEDx talk, which we have to see. And by the way, I'm going to load the TEDx talk on the show notes so they can see you in person there. That's going to be fun. So thousands from school districts to businesses to association conferences have enjoyed his energetic, interactive, and informative presentations. So it's going to be a fun conversation. He's spoken to over 2,000 different audiences worldwide and is the co-founder of the world's top reading engagement system for struggling and reluctant readers. It's the reason we wanted to make sure he came on because we do know, as you all out there know, there are a number of people who are struggling and reluctant readers, and this is what we're going to be talking about. So thanks again, Danny, for coming on board. So how did you happen to go down this path? I mean, you know, it's a tough, as I think about it, and I think about people having trouble like that, what could you possibly do? And more than that, let's get started with how you got started, if you don't mind. 
Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Chuck. I, I liked you the moment you said, uh, call me Chuck instead of Dr. Parker. I think you and I are surrounded by a lot of academics that love to uh, impress people with the uh, initials behind their uh, name. And uh, I always appreciate people that are just real. I've listened to your podcast. You're introducing people to so many different, amazing different ways to work with the mind. And so I really appreciate you having me. As far as uh, my journey... It's kind of an unorthodox journey. I I grew up hating reading, absolutely despised it. My father is a librarian, and (laughs) I always hated public libraries. They always smelled funny. They always, I hate, the furniture was always uncomfortable. There was always some elderly woman telling me to be quiet, and there's always some nutcase hanging out that thinks he's a vampire behind the bookshelves. I always, I always thought they were the freakiest places in the world. And um, it wasn't until I kind of became a teacher by accident. I was uh, working in Washington, D.C. for the American Society of Newspaper Editors, which was just a wonderful job. I got to meet every editor of every major newspaper in America. I got all these great job offers. And I got this one job offer to work for a major newspaper doing the city beat for $16,500 a year. Mm -hmm. And a friend had convinced me to apply for a teaching job in inner city Los Angeles, where they offered me $25,000 a year. And so I always tell people I became an educator for the noblest of reasons for the high pay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I taught in inner city Los Angeles. I love the kids. I've taught all ages. I always tell people from preschoolers to rocket scientists. I can make that claim because I used to teach English as a second language to engineering students at the University of Southern California. Mm. And uh, I started off, I worked with uh, high school students, then they switched me with middle school students, then I worked with upper elementary, then lower elementary, and pretty soon, instead of preparing students for college, I was coming home with snot marks all over my pants from the kids hugging me every day. (laughs) What I learned, Chuck, is what works with a 12th grader does not necessarily work with a kindergartner. But what works with a kindergartner works with all age levels. Oh, that's an interesting point. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Well, it's the truth. You know that, that for some reason, as we get older, we get stuffier. The books don't have pictures anymore. Uh, yeah. We try to impress one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, There was that book, I think it's probably about 30 years old by Robert Fulgham, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I honestly think if you just watch politicians today, maybe all of them should take a chance and read that book. I think oh everybody needs to take a nap and uh, have a snack together and calm <laughs> down. <laughs> So I, I learned from the little ones. Actually, little kids actually have such amazing insight into the brain. I always share this, Chuck, that the two greatest questions I've ever been asked were asked by little kids. I had a little five-year-old girl, Maria, and she asked me one day, she's like, Mr. Bissell, where does it say Humpty Dumpty was an egg? And I laughed, and then I reread the nursery rhyme. I'm like, wait a sec, it doesn't. Nowhere in that nursery rhyme does it say Humpty Dumpty's an egg, but there's always a picture of an egg. That's an amazing insight. I never, how did I miss that? And then I had a a six-year-old named Tyrell, and Tyrell one day asked me, he's like, "Uh, Miss Purcell, is Curious George a monkey or an ape? And I laughed (laughs) until I reread the book. And if any of your listeners, and all of them should have read Curious George, the man in the yellow hat always calls Curious George my little monkey. Mm -hmm. Well, where's his tail? He doesn't have a tail because he's not a monkey. He's a chimpanzee. I've read that book 3,000 times, never picked up on that. That's why I always tell people, if I'm ever murdered, Chuck, 
I want a first grader on the scene, not my wife. The first grader would be like, oh, he's approximately six feet tall, dark jacket, dark pants. My wife would be like, I don't know. I think he's this tall. I think he's white. Pick up stuff that the rest of us ignore every single day. And that's really been one of the, the greatest things. And so my evolution in, as a reading educator was when I taught in the inner city, so many of my kids came from very under-resourced home environments where mm -hmm. they weren't exposed to books or parents that read to them. And I realized, shame on me. I was exposed to lots of privileges, Chuck, and I'm sure you were too, where I, I came from a home where even though I didn't like reading, my parents read in front of me. They read aloud to me. We went to church where we sang hymns and you're reading when you're singing. And I never realized or appreciated how much I'd been exposed to where a lot of kids don't have that. So really my mission now is to bring the joy back in education by, by showing people not how to read. Because I, I actually think that most schools, and there's all kinds of all other programs, do a pretty good job of teaching kids how to read. Where I think we're really falling short, especially here in America, is we don't teach kids why to read. And mm -hmm. that's, that's really one of the points I like to make to audiences is, good what good is it teaching a kid how to read if they never want to read? If you get a kid, I've worked with so many seventh grade boys, teenagers, who there is no way they're gonna open up this textbook, but if I give them a manual on how to fix a Chevy, They'll memorize it from cover to cover because they're interested. Mm -hmm. And the research to help our academics in the audience right now, the research is very clear out there. It doesn't matter what you read. What matters is how much you read. It doesn't matter if you're reading James Joyce or James and the Giant Peach. People who read more read better. I'm on an airplane at least once a week. I speak to over 100 audiences worldwide every single year. And I cannot remember, Chuck, the last time I sat next to somebody on the plane who was enjoying Dostoevsky or Moliere or Maya Angelou. But mm -hmm. I sit next to plenty of people reading People Magazine, USA Today, and Fifty Shades of Grey. And there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. So my evolution is uh, really exposing people to the joys of reading and getting people to become lifelong learners. And it's I'm speaking to the choir, to your audience, because we know that people that listen to podcasts are naturally curious and they're looking for new ideas. And I loved it when we were chatting beforehand, Chuck, you were saying you love doing this podcast because you get to learn. And I love being around people like that. Complacency is a killer. We should be learning every single day. So true. So what's, what's really good about what you're talking about is really kind of without rebranding you entirely, you're kind of the carrot man because you're saying we got to have some carrots out there, folks, and we got to think about the carrots. And the carrots are tied up with the process not with the content. That's what quickly translating it because the content. Yeah, I, I really like that. I agree. Too much of education is the stick treatment, and you're absolutely right, Chuck. We're going with the carrots and the carrots, and then the and then uh, I just have a friend, and she's a woman, and she's uh, actually working with me this uh, summer. She's an intern, and I know she's a woman. I said, but you got to read Ernest Hemingway, and I said the one to read is Farewell to Arms because it's a romance. It will work for you. Yeah. And I said, you like poetry and you like metaphor. This is going to be the right book. But, you know, in retrospect, in terms of what you're talking about, the content would have been interesting. It would have been intriguing. And that's a little bit of a carrot. But what you're saying is, let's take it beyond that. Let's say, who are you? What do you want to read? And how much are you reading this summer? <laughs> a little more on the, on the practice of reading as a process, as a development. Yeah. 
I once had a, when I was teaching second grade, Chuck, I had a, a boy named Kiara and Kiara's first grade teacher told me, Kiara don't know nothing. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> well, Kiara, who don't know nothing, would come into my classroom every day and he'd be like, hey, hey, Mr. Bissell, did you see Barkley last night? He had 18 points, 16 boards. I'm like, thank you, Kiara. From that day forward, every day after lunch, he'd sit on my lap. We'd read the LA Times sports page. By the end of the year, Chuck, Kiara was one of my best readers, and that kid never read anything but sports stories. And mm -hmm. do I think Hemingway and Shakespeare are important? Absolutely. I think everybody needs to see that type of language. But before we get there, we got to give them the gateway drug, so to speak, of how yeah. to get them intrigued and, and provide that carrot that you're talking about. That is really interesting. Now, one of the things that occurs to me, because you've done this so often, and I think our listeners would agree with me, the next question is how to make all that happen. Do you actually have a system by which you can work to effectively assess a path for a person so you can actually then help them go down that path? Chuck, I should enroll you as my pimp. You're better than an infomercial. <laughs> Absolutely. We have a, a program. Uh, so I've, I've done lots of different types of programs over the last 25 years. And so the one I'm really excited about now, we've launched it in, um, I've been doing a lot of work in India, and it's going to be, uh, now we're launching it in Argentina in the Spanish version. And it's called uh, ReadBetterIn67Steps.com. And what that program does is it's a program where every day, for 67 consecutive days, parents receive a five to seven minute video from me showing them an idea on how to get their kid excited about reading. So people always, there's two numbers I kind of point out to people. The first one is 67. People are like, well, why 67 steps? Mm -hmm. Well, you'll see a lot of people, people that I respect, a lot of uh, self-help personal development gurus that say it takes 21 days to change a habit. Mm -hmm. And you and I can laugh at that and say, show me the research on that one. Mm -hmm. I can actually tell people where the number 21 days comes from. It's actually from a, a great book called Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. Yep. 1960. He was a plastic surgeon. And in the foreword of the book, he says in his observation of his patients, it took them about 21 days to get used to their new face. Well, a lot of these gurus picked up on that number and started telling people that. And I think it's a real disservice, Chuck, because let's say that you're trying to lose weight or quit smoking and you follow a program for 21 days and you haven't changed your habit. Well, then you blame yourself. And I have a problem with that because that number is just a completely random number. It's not based on research. Well, researchers in England, because it has to be from the British if it's a legitimate study. So <laughs> researchers in England in 2009, they studied people's habit formation, and they found it took anywhere from 18 to 254 days to change a habit. And that depended on the type of habit you were trying to change. For example, if you, if you wanted to drink a glass of water before dinner every night, well, that's a lot easier than quitting smoking. And then they found that it took an average of 66 days for people to actually change a habit. Well, I don't like the number 66, and so I threw in a bonus day and gave people the, the day 67. The whole point of the program, which I emphasize every day to parents, and this program works with parents that don't know how to read, by the way. I work with a lot of illiterate parents. I always tell them, this is the amazing thing that people don't realize. You don't have to know how to read to get your kid to know how to read. You just need to show them that passion and your kid can pick it up. And so the number I try to emphasize with people is, is 20. So researchers 
we'll say from Oxford, because again, it sounds better if it's a British study. So mm -hmm. uh, Oxford researchers have studied uh, student test scores around the world, and they've always looked for patterns on what do the different types of kids do? And they found something startling. So they looked at the kids that tested below the 20th percentile, and they asked them, how much time do you spend reading outside of school? And the average was less than a minute, which doesn't surprise anybody. That's why they're at the bottom of their class. But the next number always startles parents when I tell them this. The kids in the 70th percentile, so the C average students, how much time do they spend outside of school reading for fun? The number was 9.6 minutes. That's when all of a sudden there's a big gasp. And parents are saying, well, wait a sec. You're telling me if I can get my kid to read 10 minutes a day, I can take them from an F to a C? And I can always say, the research shows us yes, but here's an even more startling number. The kids in the 90th percentile, did they have to spend three hours outside of school every day reading for fun? No. Did they read an hour outside of school? No. The average was less than 21 minutes a day. Wow. 20 minutes. And so the entire point of my program is to show parents where are you going to find those 20 minutes. So I'll give you a couple ideas for your listeners right now. So if you have to drive your kid back and forth to school every single day and it's 10 minutes to get them to school, put in a book on tape. You just covered your 20 minutes doing that every single day. My own children, I have three children. While I'm making them breakfast and making their lunches for the day, I open up my laptop. There's a great program that's free of charge from the Screen Actors Guild called StorylineOnline.net, where they have different celebrities read aloud books. And every read aloud is closed captioned, and it's about 10 to 15 minutes. Well, there, you just took care of 10 to 15 minutes. My own children, one of the things I do is I turn on the closed captioning when they watch television because I, I believe that television is here to stay and kids like to watch television. <laughs> and so that one's actually research-based too, Chuck. It's kind of funny is uh, if you look at reading scores around the world, the more kids watch TV, what do you think happens to reading score? Does it go up or does it go down? I would think it go down. Up. Yeah, it always goes down. Every single country except for one. The country with the top reading scores in the world watches the most TV in the world. It's Finland. And the, the reason is because the Finns make really bad TV shows, Chuck. And so what they have to do is they import Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island from America, and they have to close caption all of those broadcasts. The kids are reading constantly. And so these are the types of ideas I'm trying to tell parents is reading doesn't have to be Hemingway. And again, I'm not, I'm not disputing that. I think yeah, Hemingway yeah. is fantastic. He needs to learn how to punctuate every now and then, but I, I do love <laughs> Hemingway. But we saw in the 1960s when the comic book, The Fantastic Four came out, reading scores actually spiked in this country with kids that were reading The Fantastic and Four. Comic books. And I always say comic books are completely underrated. When I'll, I'll do a corporate training with all these executives in suits, and I always ask them, well, what was your favorite book growing up? And Chuck, I would guarantee it's about 70% of the audience says Spider-Man, Batman, Fantastic Four. Comic books count. And actually, a comic book is written at almost twice the reading ability of the network news, which if you've watched the network news lately, that doesn't surprise anybody. But comic books count. So this is what I'm just really trying to show people is, uh, hey, there's lots of different pathways to get a person excited about reading. And the, the whole purpose of my program is to do it in those 67 days, get the 20 minutes in a day, and then the big bonus at the end, because I know a lot of your listeners are parents and they got kids who don't like reading. The kids, and here's another statistic, four out of five of struggling reluctant readers are boys. 
boys and girls are very different. Girls will read books about boys. Boys, little boys will not read books about girls. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. exceptions. I mean, I was with a, um, I was with a third grade teacher and she told me uh, she had a little boy named Mario who couldn't read. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll get him reading in an hour. And I was actually wrong, Chuck. It actually only took me 20 minutes. The mm. book I handed Mario, he liked it so much, by the next week, he had memorized the first chapter. Oh the book my I gosh. handed Mario was called Just Disgusting by Andy Griffiths, not the Sheriff of Mayberry. He's an mm-hmm. Australian author. He wrote mm-hmm. uh, The Day My Butt Went Psycho. Mm-hmm. And the first chapter in Just Disgusting is the 101 most disgusting things. I don't remember all of them, but it's like... <laughs> Number 12, dog poop. Number 13, stepping in dog poop. Trying to wipe the dog poop off your shoe and getting it on your finger. Number 15, eating a hot dog that tastes like dog poop. Number 16, realizing the hot dog tastes like dog poop because you forgot to wash your hands. I mean, that's how you get a little boy excited about reading. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want your listeners to get me wrong. I think Little Women is a wonderful book. But if you want a little boy to read it, you need to put diarrhea in the title. That's how you're going to get the boy to read it. So these are the types of things. And I love that you're laughing. This is exactly the response. We all need to lighten up a lot more. We need a lot more laughter. This is how you, t- you spread the joy. You don't do it by having people doing exercises and things like that. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you're talking about because it really enlightens me a great deal because I've been fascistic about this a little bit. In fact, you caught my fascism with a Hemingway remark, okay? But the deal is that I was an inveterate comic book collector as a kid and was all over the whole place. And I was, inv- I was collecting them and reading them and doing the whole thing. And it, puts, it sheds a little light on, on my own background because that was something. And of course, people, in, even in those days, thought it was um, insufficient. There was mm-hmm. a whole measure of insufficiency. And I liked really especially the comment on Finland because I've noticed that when my wife and I are watching Netflix, which of course is more often there, you know, because it's fun in the evening, you can kill some time and you troll a little bit and see what you're going to get. But so many of them have closed captions and because we were looking at foreign films. And so what happens is, you know, you just have to really crank up your time to stay with the program are you going to miss the whole doggone thing? You know, you can, the pictures are great in the, in the British countryside. When I, well, of course, that'd be English, but even they do have the captions. And so, you know, it winds up being good. But it, those are two very, very potent and powerful points that I think so many of us just miss completely because we're driven at the, what would be, uh, in some respects, the academic norm, you know, which would be the, you know, you got to get erudite at four and uh, instead of like, let's have some fun with this, which I mm-hmm. think your point is very well taken in that. Thank you, Chuck. So let me ask you a question. So, uh, and what I'm going to do is save this question for when we come back, but I'm going to tease you a little bit, tease the audience. So it's not teasing you because you're, you got the answer, I'm sure. But I think there, when the value of a program like this is to see where a guy like you is an expert, where you had some edifying moment yourself, where you're looking at this thing and you're watching what's going on. You actually gave us a couple of them, but I, I think the one that I would dig for a little bit, if you could say, hey, I thought I knew what I was doing here, and this was a doggone light bulb experience for me. I was cooking along, and I was doing everything right, and boom, this particular thing changed my life and changed the way I approach it. So we're, we're going to hear the answer to that, folks, in just a moment when we come back. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. 
psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professionals. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot, they get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash cbj. Yeah, that's Core Brain Journal CBJ. Well, Danny Purcell, this is so interesting because it's one of the things that so many people absolutely do not talk about. It's one of the reasons that we appreciate a guy like you coming on and telling folks what's going on. Because if you think of the families out there that have opportunities, just this little conversation with you and me out there in Possum Hollow, Arkansas or whatever, who have no way to figure out what they're going to do with that kid who's lost. And you say, look, get him a comic book. Let's get started here somewhere because we may not be the best readers, but that little piece of advice is really, I think you can't be too strong in stating how powerful and important that that comment is. It's great. Really appreciate it. So let's go back to the question. So what happened? Do you have an episode or two there you could share with us? Because I think when, when the master is transformed, when you actually have that moment where you kind of step out of your own skin and say, okay, yeah, we got to look at this a little bit differently. And so could you share something like that with us? Absolutely. Well, first of all, Chuck, again, I'm really enjoying myself. Thank you for providing this service. I, I think I'm getting older because I love things like this. I voluntarily watch PBS all the time because I like things that are informative, uh, just like you. I'm always uh, soaking in these podcasts. So you'd ask a transformative experience. And so there's a great best-selling young adult author by the name of Will Hobbs. He's one of the best young adult authors in the world. He writes books that are especially popular with teenage boys, a lot of outdoor adventure books. He wrote this great book called Crossing the Wire about a 15-year-old boy in Mexico trying to make it into America so he could feed his family. Well, before Will became a best-selling author, he was my seventh grade reading teacher in Durango, Colorado. Uh And Will was the guy that got me interested in reading for the first time. He had 5,000 books in his classroom. And every day at the beginning of class, he would tell us what he was reading. We would tell him, what we were reading, and the rest of the 15-minute period, we read. And oh, whenever man. we finished the book, we'd go up to Mr. Hobbs, he'd put down the book he was reading, he'd look through our book, ask us three or four questions, and if he was satisfied with our answers, he gave us a point. Every book up to 200 pages was worth one point. Every extra 100 pages was worth another point. You needed 25 points to get an A, and the top five point totals had their names written on the chalkboard. Oh and I, I wanted my name on that chalkboard. Really? really? <laughs> so uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, 500-page book, a four-point book. Also, 
an excellent Disney film starring James Mason and Kirk Douglas. And I was not really interested in reading a 500-page book, so I took the book up to Mr. Hobbs. He asked me four questions, and I learned a valuable lesson that day, Chuck. Books aren't always like the movies. And guess, what, guess what Mr. Hobbs did? He gave me the four points, and that's when I learned a great teaching trick. Guilt works, because I read every word of every page of every book from that point forward, wound up with 44 points, went well above and beyond what I had to do. He used the single greatest strategy I've ever seen a teacher use to get a kid excited about reading. He found out what I was interested in, which was football. Yeah. And so at least once a week, he'd come up to me with a book. He'd be like, hey, Danny, here's a book on John Elway. Check it out. I think you'll like it. Mm -hmm. What are the odds I open up that book? In my experience <laughs> of all age levels, 100%. Kid might not read it, but they're definitely going to open it. And in my experience, I found that by the fourth time I do that with a student, they're going to try and read that book because there is nothing more powerful than somebody significant in your life, a, a teacher, a coach, a pastor, a parent, a buddy, an older sibling, somebody saying, you know what? I was thinking of you when I was reading this check it out. It's the most powerful way I know to get kids excited about reading. And again, Chuck, this entire program, I tell people, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. You called me an expert. I always love when people say the word expert. I mean, I think if you read one book, you're informed. If you read two books on a subject, you're now the expert. Right. Uh, it's an overused term. I'm yeah, not it is. Yeah. What I am is a person that ironically was a struggling and reluctant reader myself who became a good reader. I was always a good reader. I just never liked it. But when I saw kids that really were struggling and hating it, I tried to figure out, well, what are ways to get them interested in it? And when I, I train people, I always tell people, I'm not going to really tell you anything you don't know. What I'm really good at is reminding people a lot of the basic core elements that we forget. And it really gets to, again, what you had said earlier, the carrot. Why am I doing this? Why does a person listen to a podcast? Well, there's lots of other ways to pass the time than listen to uh, Core Brain Journal. You know, yeah. you watch Netflix. But I mean, there's yeah. a reason people are listening to this. They want to learn. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get a kid to become a lifelong learner. That's where I'm, I want to serve kids. I don't care. I've never had a kid 10 years later come into my classroom and say, Hi, Mr. Brassell. I remember you. You were the person that boosted me up to the next quartile on my state testing. <laughs> oh, they, don't, they don't. They don't. What, what they remember is they, they the topic, the yeah. that would sit there and read to me yeah. uh, the sports yeah. page, or you did those funny read-alouds every day where you did character voices. It's those experiences, and this is something any parent can do. I love working with parents. I've worked with incarcerated parents. I've worked with intoxicated parents. But I've never worked with a parent, Chuck, that doesn't love hearing nice things said about their kid and doesn't appreciate any kind of simple tip that they can use to help their child. And it doesn't matter if you're a, a Wall Street broker, a stockbroker, or you're a kindergarten teacher. I can give any parent some basic tips and people always appreciate, oh, this is something that I can do. I'm not going to make any, you don't need a PhD to do any of this stuff. My mom, every single, people ask, used to ask my mom when I was growing up, why she didn't have a dishwasher. And she'd say, oh, I got three, Danny, Jim, and Liz. And while my <laughs> brothers and sisters and I were, were washing and drying dishes, she was reading aloud to us. And oh, fantastic. I really, I PhD to be a really good parent. You just need to be present. There was a great quote by Jesse Jackson, of all people, who said that, that kids don't need your presence. They need your presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was wonderful. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that occurred to me was you were talking about some of the examples that you were giving in terms of remembering the child 
and the topic or whatever it was they were interested in, whether it's football, baseball, whatever, or whatever the topic was, there's an intimacy that comes up in which you actually know that person on a completely different level than just being a kid or just being a, as you were saying a moment ago, some of the examples may be an investment counselor. If you talk to a guy in a meeting and you wind up getting down to what you've read or what you think about what you've read, you do, a person does, it's quite natural and it's, it's ubiquitous. It doesn't not happen. It happens all the time. You know that person on a different level and I think you appreciate their humanity and who they are from many different levels that ordinarily you wouldn't have. This is just a guy rolling through and I know that guy and I can share that with that guy and I actually connected on that topic based on that very small conversation. Mm-hmm. And obviously not going to go to dinner parties and talk about books, but I think it's successfully, it can be done. And that's what book clubs are about. I mean, if you, if you think about it, people really grow quite close with book clubs. They've read it. They've talked about it. They all have different opinions about it and they can grow from it. But I thought that was very meaningful because that's one of the things that I think a good parent does, a good teacher does, anyone who's working with children, speaking as a child psychiatrist, say that is something I do know about you. And you did really handle that very well. And just pass the compliment along. Like that's constructive. It's valuable. Thank you for sharing that. It's really very cool, really. Well, thank you. And to add on to that, because you're talking about your work as a child psychiatrist. So the book that all of your listeners get, Read, Lead, and Succeed, and I I know you're providing it. If they don't hit that link, all they have to do is go to readleadandsucceed.com. They'll get their complimentary copy. So I wrote that book for a school principal who didn't know how to engage his faculty. So I said, okay, I'll write you a book. So every week I give you a concept, an inspirational quote, an inspirational story, a book recommendation on a book you should read, but you're probably too lazy because you're an adult. So I also give you a children's picture book recommendation that you can read in five minutes. And it's something that any child psychologist would know is we kind of ignore the importance of children's literature. I think that's where it's at. There's a, a book written for any type of trauma a child could encounter. There's books about tsunamis. There's books about 9-11. There's books about wetting the bed. There's books about not speaking English as a first language. There's books about everything. And that's where I always thought Dr. Seuss was really a genius. I always tell adults, you should read your favorite children's books as an adult because you'll get a different take on it. Mm -hmm. You know what? Dr. Seuss wrote the Lorax 50 years before anybody was paying attention to the environment. There's some Mm -hmm. messages that these people are, I mean, J.K. Rowling with the Harry Potter series, there are so many different messages in those books that are just phenomenal. And so uh, that's one of the things I just think is uh, a lot of us are missing out on and parents, anybody can do this with a kid. And that's what I want to serve people that think they don't have time. I'll have a parent, I don't have time to read with my kid. I'm like, who has time after you watch the game on TV, go out shopping, have a couple of beers? I mean, who has time? to read with your child. Well, it's not rocket science. It's 20 minutes a day. And at the end of the program, I I always love to tell people, I'm kind of giving it away. After 67 days, I have a video where I tell the parents, well, you just spent 67 consecutive days reading for 20 minutes with your child. And I can pretty much guarantee that after about 40 days, the kid's loving reading and they're reading better. But the big bonus that I don't tell people at the beginning is at the end, I'm like, I just gave you 20 minutes of personal time every single day with your kid. How many of us, when we were children, wouldn't have loved to have had 20 minutes of that time every single day with our parent? I just gave you the most precious gift in the world. It's time with your child. That is such a remarkably good point. Thank you so much for sharing that. And folks, 
just by the way, while we're talking about it, he, he ran through that URL. I'm going to have that on the show notes, so don't worry about it if you're driving to work. Hop <laughs> over. It's going to be there, and we'll get it done. Take the number from the episode, and we'll have it down in the show notes. And we'll and actually, to tell you the truth, I'm going to load his TED Talk, too, on the whole thing. Cool. Because I think that'd be fun. You know, you think you see the, see the guy in action doing a TED Talk. I think it's outstanding. But you, know, you, you think about the implications of, of these remarks. And I think it's one of the reasons you're, you're so actively involved around the world. Because when you speak about it, everyone intuitively knows that you're absolutely right. This is not a reach. This is not like confounding and puzzling and what are you talking about. And I think when you then say, here's the structure, it's not that complicated. And furthermore, it's so encouraging to say it's 20 minutes. And then you have the whole thing of the topic and finding the topic is just so, so very comprehensive in the way you approach it. So let me ask you this question. What would you think about a person who was completely taking a position of resisting reading, resisting anything academically? What would be, certainly reading to them would be helpful, but let's talk a little bit because this is far more common than we can appreciate. How do you talk to a parent or to a teacher about that very difficult, I just don't want to bother with this situation? What's your, some remarks about that, please? Yeah, so I've dealt with a lot of the most reluctant readers. And again, it's really, I mean, it's basic child psychiatry. One of the best ways to do it is to tell a kid not to do it. If you ever want a kid to do something, tell them not to do it. Uh, so one of the tricks I used to use with kids is I, I'd start to read a book. I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm looking at the back cover, and this says it has a Lexile number. Lexile number means the grade level, and uh, it says it's, it's written for grade 2.8. Well, we're only first graders, so this is too tough for us. I'll put it on my desk here if anybody wants to check it out later, but I know it's too tough for you. <laughs> That's uh, great. Another thing I love to do, uh, people always ask why my kids were always on time after recess. I'm like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Is I'd always, before recess, I'd always read a passage. I'm like, Harry took out his wand. He looked at Voldemort and we'll read the rest of this after we get back from recess. Well, that's what good shows do on TV. They, they make you have to tune back in. Yeah, I always yeah. thought that Oprah has done such a great service for America because uh, the three words I always tell teachers to remember is book reports stink. They get kids to hate reading. Oprah talks about books the way people talk about their favorite sports teams and their favorite TV shows. She gets people excited about reading. The more excited you are to read, the more likely you are to read. The more you read, the better you get. And so when I'm dealing with a reluctant reader, I'm, I'm attacking them. I, I always say a kid is like a country that you want to go to war with. How do you get them? By land, by air, by sea. I'm going to get them reading on their own. I'm going to get their friends reading around them. I'm going to read aloud to them. I'm going to make, I'm just going to envelop them. And what I really want to do is do it around their interest. I want to find out what the kid's interested in is, that's a real basic concept. If I got a kid that, I mean, I used to volunteer at a juvenile detention facility for teenage girls. And mm -hmm. these were the tough kids mm -hmm. that they said nobody could get through to. And so what I, re I read with them every day is uh, in the back of Us magazine is this great thing called the Fashion Police, where they get comedians who rip on celebrities' outfits. Oh, yeah, right. These girls went crazy. They were always just love. Oh, what they say about Kim Kardashian? Oh, that's hilarious. And they couldn't yeah. get enough of it. If that's what it takes. I mean, again, the boy who reads Captain Underpants this is not highbrow literature, but I guarantee you the kid that reads Captain Underpants 
is going to be a better reader than the kid that's not reading anything. I love it when people tell me, oh, this little kid can't read. I'm like, oh, really? Because I was just with that kindergartner and he spotted the word Kittich and Voldemort and Hogwarts. You know, they can't read. I was with a fourth grader once. The fourth grade teacher told me the kid couldn't read. I was with him for an hour, Chuck, and the kid sent about 20 text messages, opened up his email, looked through his email, opened up about 50 websites. He's highly literate. She's using a definition from 75 years ago. I get this question all the time from parents as they say, well, what's better, real books or electronic books? And my answer is yes. Whatever. <laughs> You know, yeah. I like regular books. I'm kind of old school. I, I'm sounding more and more like an old curmudgeon every single day. I like an actual book in my hands. My wife, she actually loves her Kindle. And mm -hmm. even though I'm not a Kindle guy, I'll make the argument for a Kindle. I'll, I'll give you three things that I've noticed with her, which are awesome. First of all, her Kindle, she's from Singapore. And so we go back to visit her family every other year. And while I'm packing 20 books in my backpack, she's bringing in this one pound Kindle that has access to the world's library. That's pretty smart. Yeah, yeah. Second of all, every night when we're in bed reading, she's annoyed because I have my lamp on next to me. Mm -hmm. She doesn't need a lamp because her Kindle lights itself up, That's which true. is pretty That's awesome. True. Yeah. And third, and this is a big one for me now, Chuck, is I'm starting to get older and it's tough for me to read a lot of the print on some of these books. Well, with the Kindle, you can actually adjust the print so the size of the font That's becomes amazing. bigger. It's yeah. a wonderful resource. I mean, I've worked with lots of special needs students, which I've always hated that term because I yeah. believe every person has special needs. But uh, even on an Apple iPhone, they have all kinds of audio programs and visual programs for people who might have some kind of impairment. These are the basic things. Again, I'm not showing anybody anything that they wouldn't know on their own. I'm reminding people what a lot of us forget. It's yeah, I, I quite agree with you. Now, I want you to say something because I love your whole presentation. I, I mean, it's very easy to follow your experience with the individuals you're talking about. You just see the whole situation unfold. I was tracking with you on Oprah, and I was thinking about that whole experience. You did say something about three words that Oprah says. She doesn't say the three words. I say the three words. The three words are book, reports, stink. Okay, okay, I got you. If you look at the way <laughs> reading is presented in school, we'll, we'll use Hemingway as an example. Is The reason I hated classic literature as a child was because it was being forced upon me. Yeah. And so I hated Steinbeck. I hated Hemingway. To this day, the Scarlet Letter drove me nuts. I, I hated Hawthorne. I said, you know, Hester Prynne had an A on her chest. I want a B on my forehead because this is the most boring book I've ever read in my <laughs> life. I didn't appreciate it because it was forced upon me. Yeah. Now, that's a lot to do with the teacher. I bet you a good teacher could have made me fall in love with those different things. For example, I had a, a, a wonderful English teacher, and she made me fall in love with Shakespeare because she let me get away with stuff. I don't usually share this story with people, but in 11th grade, she made us, we had to memorize 200 lines from Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. And so I raised my hand and I asked, do they have to be consecutive? And she interpreted the question as, oh, yeah, you can memorize 100 from here and 100 from there. Well, I was an obnoxious teenager. Mm -hmm. And what I did is I took about two to five lines from 38 different plays. So I'm like, to be or not to be? Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? When shall we three meet again? <laughs> he loved it. And rather than being a teacher that hated me for it, she actually asked me to present that to other classes because she thought it was so ingenious. That's a smart teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that took the kid and she said, well, huh, that's a way I never would have thought of before. And so that's what, uh, when I've written a book on reading comprehension, and I always tell people, well, reading comprehension doesn't have to be lame. 
after you read a book, let's compare it after you watch one of your Netflix movies. After you watch a Netflix movie, is your first impulse to get out a piece of paper and write down the theme and the three main characters? <laughs> no, it's to talk about it with your wife and say, yeah, yeah. oh, that was a pretty cool scene. And, oh, I didn't like that. And, mm -hmm. But this is what we force kids to do when we say book reports. And so there's different ways to demonstrate comprehension. And so um, probably my favorite thing that I do with kids every day is I'll read them a story without showing them the cover and without telling them the title of the book. And after I read the story, I say, all right, kids, draw me a cover and give me a title. That's a comprehension activity. What fun. Yeah. I don't I mean, like if that. you have any classes I could sit in, I would appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Just get everybody involved in uh, Read Better in 67 Steps. That's, a, that's what we're doing. Is, uh, I mean, I'm passionate about this because, I, I, again, I think we focus too much on the drudgery of reading and not how to make reading fun for people. And, again, some people love a separate piece by John Knowles. I hate that book. Mm -hmm. But we can have a great conversation about how you love it and how I hate it. Mm -hmm. I like being around literate people that are discussing. Or when I do book clubs, I, there's two types of book clubs, I think. There's uh, a book discussion, which I think is more of what Oprah does, where all of us read the same book and we give our reaction to that book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's what I call a book talk, where every Monday with my students – I would ask everybody, what's your favorite book or what is it that you're reading? And we'd all kind of give our own little commercials. Mm -hmm. and I always found a book. I'm like, wow, that sounds really interesting. I got to read that. Mm -hmm. I'm reading a friend of mine. I, I read everything because I have a, a book club called LazyReaders.com. So every year I have to go through about 5,000 books to show people uh, my book club, basically, every month I give 10 book recommendations, three or four adult level, three or four young adult level, and three or four children's level books, all under 250 pages, so people can read them really quickly. But I still have to read longer books, and so um, I love presidential biographies and any kind of biography. And so a friend just shared with me uh, Hamilton, John, oh, oh who yeah. wrote it? Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow's oh. uh, book on Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> and I've read lots of uh, biographies. I mean, one of my favorite presidential authors is uh, David McCullough, just a wonderful yeah, author. Great guy, great guy. And, just, and when you listen to him on PBS, I'm like, man, that voice, that's like James Earl Jones' voice of God. It's just a beautiful <laughs> voice. And reading Hamilton, now I'm interested in everything that Ron Chernow has written because I'm like, wow, he's made history so accessible, whereas... You and I are both in academia where mm -hmm. people love to impress you with big words and lots of references, but they don't develop a storyline. Mm -hmm. And that's what's amazing to me about Hamilton is I'm like, wow, he's really drawn me into the story where I actually want to turn the pages. The reason I always told people John Grisham was such a successful, is such a successful author is every chapter is like six pages. So you're sitting there, it's 10 o'clock at night. And you get to the end of a chapter and it says, and then he found the knife. <laughs> well, okay, I'll just read one more chapter. Yeah. And pretty soon it's two in the morning. You read the whole book because yeah. he got you in. Whereas, whereas opposed to, I like presidential biographies where it's like chapter one, page one, chapter two, page 128. I'm like, oh, this is going to drive me yeah. crazy. But it's interesting how different authors uh, – can bring you in. So I'm, I'm sorry, that was just a total aside, but I realized I'm like, man, now I'm going to read everything Ron Chernow has written. Or when I read uh, Walter Isaacson's biography on Steve Jobs, it was so well written. I'm like, yeah. I read his biography on Albert Einstein, which is wonderful. And now I just bought a, a copy of his book, The Innovators About Tech. So this is what I love to do with people is, is find out what they're reading, why they were interested. My wife, she loves uh, Diana Gabaldon's uh, Outlander series. And mm -hmm. so I started reading the Outlander books and they're really well written, historical fiction. My own kids, there's different children's authors that I read to them. There, I'm like, oh, that's a really well-written. My oldest is reading uh, Rick Reardon's uh, Percy Jackson's series. And so I'm like, oh, this is interesting the way he writes this. And so this is what 
I try to encourage people to do all the time. Well, you know, there's a great book. You know about it, I'm sure, because you're into reading. But we had a book. My wife and I bought a book. And I, it's, it's, I've been trying to remember it since you've mentioned it a couple times, the whole process of books for children. But it's, it is something like excellent books for children or whatever. And it's just a whole book about children's book and the ages that are, and we had that around for a long time. And it really guided us through, here's where they are. This would be a, a fun place to go. But, you know, I was thinking about you returning for just a moment to your Shakespeare situation, because I think another thing that happens is it's a lot like poetry, because when you did the sound bites of Shakespeare, each sentence or even four words can put you into the complete play. I mean, the associations of the words and the connections with the rest of the storyline, it's a sound bite. You know, it's like, boom, and you're, okay, okay, I got that one, and you can't stay there, I got to go to the next one, you know, but it has, it's very entertaining, and then a person feels like, hey, you know, I got to revisit, because he said something about to be or not to be, or Leon McDuff, let him be damned who first cries old enough. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Well, and you just hit another thing, Chuck, and this is, so this is a big one. This is really one of my biggest secrets of, I wasn't a great teacher. I just used some really basic strategies that would work with anybody. So when I'm talking to parents and teachers, I always emphasize this, use poetry. I mean, every day when I was a teacher, so you say, every day I read aloud at least four poems to my students. Takes me less than five minutes. Now think about that. Over the course of a 180 day school year, my students have been exposed to over 700 poems. I actually mandated all of my students had to memorize at least 20 poems. And it's a great way to differentiate instruction based on on children's abilities. And so when I was teaching kindergarten, I had uh, one of my my non-readers, one of my lowest readers was Jose. And Jose, every Thursday, all of my students become a poem. That's, I got that idea from Fahrenheit 451. So every kid has, they're not a kid anymore, they're a poem. And so Jose on Thursday, he's like, hi, I'm the, I'm the Sitter by Shel Silverstein. Mrs. McTwitter, the babysitter, I think she's a little bit crazy. She thinks a babysitter's supposed to sit upon the baby. Then I get uh, Yesenia, one of my top students, and she's like, hi, I'm Mark Anthony from Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil the men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. He was my friend, loyal and just to me. But Brutus is an honorable man. This was a six-year-old girl. She memorized 50 lines from Julius Caesar. People always ask me, how did you do that, Danny? I'm like, Kindergarten Cop. You ever see the movie Kindergarten Cop, Chuck? No. Uh-uh. In that movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he becomes a kindergarten teacher. I did see it. He makes all of his kindergartners memorize the Gettysburg Address. And I watched that movie and I thought, huh, I wonder if that's possible. I'm convinced, Chuck, we underestimate kids all the time. If you get them interested, they could actually learn calculus if you're a good teacher. I'm always trying to figure out, well, what's that way I'm going to get the kid? You know, when I was a high school football player, our star running back was going to be ineligible because he was failing math. And so I tutored him in math. And here's a guy who was failing math, but he could read any defense that he went up against. And so the way I taught him math was through football, and he became interested, and he became a really good math student. It wasn't anything ingenious. It was just figure out what they're interested in and based all around that. You opened the door. Yes. (laughs) And he saw the light. (laughs) (laughs) This is what you do, Chuck. This is all you're talking about in this podcast is how do we affect the brain? The brain makes associations. You know, we can go into all the names of the different parts of the brain. I don't do that with people. I say, you know, it's interesting. There's 
one of the exercises I'll do with people on memories on how your brain works is I'll, I'll show them a picture of a bed and I'll read aloud 15 words related to a bed. I'll say, uh, you know, uh, uh, blanket, nap, pillow, night, artichoke, insomnia, night. I give this list of words and I say, okay, how many of you wrote the words um, pillow and blanket? And a lot of people raise their hand. I'm like, well, that's the primacy and recency effect is those were the first and last words I told you. Your brain tends to remember the first and last items it's presented with. So for teachers, what's the big takeaway for us is, wow, the bun's more important than the burger. People remember the beginning and the end more than the middle. So make sure you put the important stuff at the beginning and the end. I'm like, how many of you wrote down the word night? And a lot more people. I'm like, well, that's the repetition effect. I said the word night three times. You know, mm. so your mm. brain likes having information repeated to it. So don't important. the takeaway for us as teachers is don't be that teacher's like, oh, Chuck, I'm so sorry you missed school on Tuesday. That's when I taught everybody how to add. You know, no, <laughs> you need to go through that more than once. And then yeah. I'll say, how many of you wrote down the word insomnia? Every hand goes up. And I'm like, that's called the surprise effect. Your brain, whether you like it or not, is constantly looking for classifications. It's classifying things, looking for associations. Mm. When it finds an item that doesn't match the other associations, it stores that piece of information in an entirely different part of the brain, which ironically makes that piece of information stand out. So what's the takeaway for us as teachers is, what is your moment every day that you're making something memorable? I've never had a person attend one of my presentations and six months later come to me and say, you know what I liked about your talk, Danny, was that one slide with 18 bullet points that you couldn't read because the font was so small. They don't remember (laughs) that, but they remember when I teach them a song or when we do a game together or when I read a lot of story. So our job is to create memorable experiences. I've actually had kids remember a story because I wore a silly hat while I read the story or we read the story underneath our desk. That's what we're trying to create all the time for our students. So, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir. This is a brain audience, but that's what I love about the brain is how little we actually still know about the brain. It's, uh, I can't remember the name of the researcher. He's this genius who he could either... uh, He could explore space or explore the oceans, but he said, no, I want to explore the brain. It's the most unknown of all three. Absolutely right. So true. Listen, in closing, I'm going to tell you that I'm a very disturbed guy, okay? (laughs) I have a problem, and I want to have you tell me what the answer is right here in front of everybody. Great. How come I stuck on artichoke? (laughs) Again, artichoke... Artichoke is different. I'm sorry, I said insomnia was the word. It was artichoke. Since every other word was associated to uh, bed, mm-hmm. artichoke stood out for you. And so it's, yeah. uh, you know, if you read Seth Godin's book, Purple Cow, it's the same yeah. philosophy. Is yeah, uh, yeah. Good you know, point. a purple cow, you see a purple cow, you're like, oh my gosh, that was a purple cow. But after a right. couple of days, you're like, oh, another, another purple cow. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, the unique thing. Well, listen, Danny, this has been such a fantastically interesting presentation. And you are doing such a world of good for so many people by just coming in and giving your time to our audience out here. And I know they appreciate it. I'm going to have all that stuff in the show notes for sure. I really appreciate it. And that one, uh, lazyreaders.com, the recommendations, is that a newsletter list? Every month for the rest of your life, eternity, you'd, be, you'd get a, a, one email once a month giving you different book recommendations. Yeah, and you can always have... give recommendations on books. But every book has to be under 250 pages for people that don't think they have time to read. Well, we're going we're gonna to have all that stuff, folks, in the, in the uh, show notes. So that's fantastic. Danny Brassell, thank you so much for coming on board. We really appreciate it. It's been a great, great treat. Anytime you could come on again, just let me know. We'll do it again. You're, you're awesome, Chuck. This is a lot of fun. You're great. Thank you. Have a good day, buddy. You too. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.